Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Hey, Tish. Yeah. What are you drinking today? It's like 98 degrees here in Texas, though. It's oh, already gosh. sparky water season. Oh. Grapefruit. I'm, I, would, I wish I was joking. It's 98 degrees today. So, mm. And it's early mm. May. So I'm drinking grapefruit, sparkling water, and I'm going to just like drink it all summer long. Yeah. It's That's hell. How do it you is- survive? Ask my Oregonian husband who questions our sanity every <laughs> May through early November. Um, I know. We survive by going to Oregon in the summer. That's how we do it. So. Uh, that's how I would survive. I would survive by that's going it. to Iceland. Yeah, exactly. All right. So how about you, Seth? What are you drinking? I'm drinking coffee from my favorite little coffee shop, Hail Fellow Well Met, downstairs. Uh, and today, I, I just I want to throw this out there. Today, I went down and I got a cup of coffee to sort of kick my day off, and it was amazing. And I went to the uh, purveyor of said coffee, the owner of the shop, and I said, "What is happening with your coffee today? This is amazing." And she looked at me, she huge eyes. She was like, "I have no idea." She said, "You're the second person to say this to me today." It is the same coffee brewed at the same temp. We roasted it the same way. We have no idea, but people are commenting on how different it is. And so today is a delightful day in which I'm glad to be drinking my third cup of coffee from downstairs. That's how good it is. That's impressive. It's amazing that you guys even have, I mean, maybe this is just how law offices work, that y'all would even have office coffee if you've got a literal coffee shop downstairs. Well, I mean, honestly, the 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 office coffee, which we've talked about before, that rhymes with Schmarbucks uh, from the Keurig, is uh, is it's free and not good. The uh, <laughs> the downstairs coffee is is it's some yeah. coin. Yeah, yeah, that makes but sense. It's worth it. it it's sense. worth it. Well, yep. speaking of lawyers, huh? how's that for a transition? <laughs> speaking of lawyers, we have got some friends. We have two guests with us today. Tish, why don't you take the uh, introductions? All right. So these are our friends, Beth Silvers, Sarah Stewart-Holland. You guys chatted up at Pantsy Politics, but you're around our table today, and we're so delighted to have you. So let's start off with you telling us what you're drinking before we deep dive into our chat. Who wants to go first? Beth, you're, you're on the left of me. So how about you go first? Sure. Thank you so much for having us here. So I'm drinking tap water, which I know is not exciting, but I'm drinking it in an exciting vessel. I just (laughs) bought myself a gallon container for my water and it has tick marks to show me how much I should drink it by certain times of day, Mm. along with encouraging phrases to meet those goals. And so it's really helping me like increase my water consumption and more importantly, decrease my soda consumption. I am a Diet Mm. Coke girl and I'm Mm. trying to ramp down my Diet Coke intake. Mm. Well done, you. Thank you. Very cool. How about you, Sarah? I am drinking Kroger (laughs) brand seltzer water, lemon lime. Okay. Because we consume so much sparkling water in my house. We have to buy the like cheapest of cheap generic Kroger brand. Yeah. Between my husband and I, I would say we consume almost a six pack a day. Oh, wow. Um, we Impressive. really love sparkling water. Yeah. Especially now. It is also 90 degrees in Kentucky. We went from like 60 to 90. Mm-hmm. I do not like it. It better no. calm down a little bit. Right. And I always say that people start complaining about it being cold in March. And I'm like, you will not be sad in August. 
That's right. Does everybody no. remember when it was 76 on Christmas? I do. Mm-hmm. I'm still traumatized. So <laughs> uh, I don't. But yes, sparkling, ice cold can of sparkling water is definitely how we get through the heat. Although we yeah. drink it all year long. So yeah, same with us. Cheers. This is also our H-E-B. This Cheers. is H-E-B, which is the generic brand. Nice. So I'm with you. Yep. Yeah. So so this heat wave across the South that we're sort of enduring uh, on May 11th. Are you kidding me? I mean, I yeah. walk outside and I sweat. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I, I want to fight with the weather. Can we pick a fight with the weather? <laughs> Speaking of fighting, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, right? Are we going to talk about fighting or what? Who wants to start a fight? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what we do. We don't start no. fights. Okay, that sucks. I was really Sorry. looking forward to that. Well, Beth and Sarah, why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do? I'm a huge fan, big fan, uh, admittedly. Um, maybe even fanboy. So why don't you tell our listeners uh, what you do? We host a podcast called Pantsuit Politics. We write books. We do live speaking. And really all of that centers around the idea that conversation can connect us. Conversation about some of the most difficult, controversial topics, specifically political topics in our country, can strengthen the connections between us. Um, and so that's what we do together on Pantsy Politics. Um, that's what we write about in our books. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. And now what? Um, and that's what we sort of go out on the road and try to to help people with is, is give them sometimes very specific language to use in tough conversations, um, sometimes just, just by modeling tough conversations. Um, but we really believe that that is the path forward on so many fronts in America right now. And so that's what that's our work. That's what we do. So tell me what makes your uh, show, Pantsuit Politics, uh, two amazing, uh, wonderful thinkers talking about politics, what makes that different than any other show where two people sit around talking about politics? Well, we are just people sitting around talking about politics. I think most shows are not just two people sitting around (laughs) talking about politics. They are two journalists who have to bring a certain lens to the subject, or they are two pundits, or they are two party people who have talking points that they have to advance in those discussions. Or the whole model is premised on, you're going to represent this point of view, and I'm going to represent this diametrically opposed point of view, and we're going to hash it out. We're going to have a debate. And our model is... Hey, we are two Kentucky moms. Uh, we have friends and family who we care about and lives here in a place in middle America. We're not studying middle America like it's a different species of human um, and trying to figure out what those normal people think. We are normal people. <laughs> we have law degrees so we can interpret Supreme Court opinions. You know, we can follow, we can track the news a little bit more closely than people who are trying to get through the day in other professions. We spend a lot of time doing research and preparing, but at the end Mm. of the day, we're trying to get to what does connect us? What are our values around this conversation? What questions do we still have? We wrap up a lot of discussions where I have more questions than I had coming into the conversation, and that's fine uh, because we never think of a subject as like, this is our one abortion episode. We're never going to talk about it again. You know, we're in a relationship with each other and with our listeners, and so we, we let each conversation just be one piece of that ongoing relationship. And I think that's what makes your show so nuanced because you guys are just regular people. Like if you think of conversations around the table, nobody says like, and wrap. Now we have our defined opinions. I'm right. You're wrong. Uh, Let's go our separate merry ways. That is not how life works. And I know you guys know this, like the older we get, the more questions we have than answers, the more we realize life is gray and not black and white. 
And you guys model that really well as old friends who have various opinions and have learned to change and grow and, and admit where you're wrong, you know, find contentment where you feel solidly grounded in and I don't know, then go and feed your kids and run your errands and be human beings that live in communities like, like we all do. And that's what makes it so great, I think. Yeah. Well, not to rush right to the beating up social media part of the program, but you know, I think so much of that has just happened through social media because it it flattens the expectations. It's like all of a sudden the outcome is either a like or a share or a, or a mean comment as opposed to the idea that this is a continuing conversation, right? It condenses everything into a post. It flattens all the reactions into like thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, and so I think that sort of became absorbed in our expectations around politics and political conversations as opposed to sort of this this ongoing flow we were all always a part of, right? And we could step out or we could step in, but the expectation was not that you were going to dam the whole river on your own, right? Um, and I think that that has really infected the way we think about political engagement with one another. It's, it often is just like through this prism of our interactions on social media. Have, have you guys noticed, or, or I guess the question is, what do you notice about um, the increasing polarization of political thought, particularly in America, and what part of that, if any, is attributable to social media? I think that's a, I think it's a question that I'm currently wondering myself uh, as I sort of take a break from social media. Like, how much of my thinking and and polarized ideology was was really influenced or is influenced by social media? I think social media tries to claim the entire space around prioritizing what matters in a way that's really detrimental to the, to the polarization of our country. Uh, You know, if you looked on social media yesterday, the most important story surfacing was Elon Musk deciding to reinstate Donald Trump on Twitter. Hmm. Like, I don't think that that's the most important story to literally (laughs) anyone in America. Hmm. I just don't, I don't think it's unimportant. I don't think it's unworthy of some thought and discussion, but it is definitely not the most important thing happening right now. And some of the most important things happening right now, you know, Congress considering legislation that would help us manufacture more chips in the United States and the increasing prices of fertilizer. Like some of those stories are never going to hit on social media unless one particular person says or does something really stupid around them. And I think that hurts us a lot. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing social media does is it makes us believe that even on those stories like semiconductor chips and fertilizer, there should be a Republican and a Democratic perspective and they yeah. should be opposed to one another mm-hmm. instead of recognizing, as Sarah and I have over the years, we have different philosophies about what government should do and we have very different personalities. Those differences do not surface in every or even most of our conversations because yeah. most issues uh, are not built for that kind of debate. Mm. And the interests around them are much more complex than you versus me. Um, mm. I just think social media has been a terrible accelerant of this idea that there are two camps in the United States and a membership in one of those camps defines everything for you. Mm. I've heard something like 2% of Americans are on Twitter or something like that. Oh, like, yeah, it's, it's a shockingly small amount. And it's helpful to remember that. Well, I think, though, let's, again, let's not, it's so easy to get stuck in this, like, Twitter's the worst and it's not relevant. When I do think it is relevant because the people on Twitter 
are very elite inside their industries. They are talking to each other. They are defining the conversation within their industries, very, you know, um, very impactful, influential industries on Twitter. So it's not that it's irrelevant um, because it is relevant. And like some of that prioritization that trickles out into mass media is defined in those trending topics on Twitter. Um, That's how you end up with a lot of stories about Elon Musk. That's right. You know, removing the Trump's Twitter ban. And so I think that's the hard line to walk is that it's not that it's irrelevant. It's not that we're all going to walk away from Facebook. It's not that people are just going to decide, oh, man, it's a bad idea to get your news from an algorithm. Like we have to observe these trends and acknowledge sort of the implications of them and also understand that we're not going to reverse them either. And that some of this is something we need to learn to live with and learn to adapt to. Um, and I think that's that's really hard. Yeah, I I a hundred percent agree with you, Sarah. And and one of the things that I I actually will admit on the show is that I'm very much missing engagement on Twitter, and not because I think that Twitter is a social good necessarily. Um, the reason I miss it is because to some degree you're watching the the sort of table stakes be set. You know, you're, you're seeing, here's what this side says is important. Here's what this side says is important. And here's how, um, you know, the, the vacuous middle is, is sort of not reacting or reacting. Um, and so it, it's, it is a very important, I think, part of public dialogue. And I, I think to me that gets a little bit to what we want to talk about today. Um, your new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided parentheses about basically everything, which I think was amazing. The parenthetical there is just amazing. So kudos to to whomever thought of that. But um, yeah, we're divided about basically everything. And it feels like we're more and more divided um, into two camps. And it feels like, whereas, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it, it, it felt like, yeah, at a high level, we were divided, right? The politicians were talking about it. But on the ground we could always seem to find some kind of common ground or at least some kind of civility and dialogue. Um, and now, you know, Thanksgiving dinner is a friggin' nightmare. Uh, you know, so, so talk to me a little bit about your new book, the work that it aims to do um, and, and, and maybe even how you sort of see it uh, uh, or why you organized it the way you did and, and how you see it playing out. We realized as we sat down to write this book that the basically everything is pretty important. It's probably always been the case that politics are not just about politics. It is certainly the case now that we are not talking about politics. We are talking about, are you wearing a mask or not? Are we going to go to this mm-hmm. wedding because of the way y'all mm-hmm. acted about COVID? Where is my faith in the the categorization of my political views, everything has gotten so personal. Uh, politics is not a subject for elites anymore, right? It's it's everyone engaged mm-hmm. in this all the time about everything. So we organized the book around our relationships, uh, starting with those relationships closest to us, beginning with the family you grew up in, 
and working our way outward. The second half of the book is those farther away from us. So looking at social media, uh, looking at people we share a country and a globe with, what do we owe to each other as global citizens? But we, we don't start with the big issue, which is where we're taught to enter political dialogue, the biggest possible issue with the highest possible stakes. I like how you said table stakes. I think that's exactly it. Uh, we start with where might all this be coming from? What's the foundation upon which uh, your personal views have been built and the people you share life with, where have their personal views been built? And we try to offer mm. people some really specific language to investigate those questions because we can keep doing this thing where we just beat on each other about our opinions and say, well, we agree to disagree and and we don't actually, we're just huffy with each other or we decide we can't be in relationship anymore. Or we can do the work of figuring out like why we have these relationships in the first place and how to sustain them. And we really believe that working through those relationships and sustaining the ones that can be sustained will ripple out into those larger issues. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. So I, I want to play out a little bit of a hypothetical that maybe um, that, that, that maybe sort of fits with the, the organization of your book. Your book sort of looks first at the relationships that are closest to us and then sort of goes out from there, right? Like almost like a ripple effect, looking at the, the way um, our engagement and agreement and disagreement sort of goes out from there. So last week um, I was, you know, I'm an attorney too. So three attorneys walk into a show. (laughs) I'm not really an attorney. I only play one on TV. I have a law degree. I've never practiced a day in my life. But that's okay. You got the degree. That's a lot of work, Sarah. (laughs) Come on. So I did uh, pass the bar. So I guess, I mean, <laughs> listen, you're an attorney then you're a lawyer, even some would say. Uh, <laughs> so I was discussing the leaked Supreme court opinion, uh, ostensibly, which will overrule Roe v. Wade, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And, um, so I was talking with a, with a partner about that deep thinker, uh, brilliant thinker actually. And she said, um, you know, I think it was leaked, by the left, and here's why. Very adamant, very adamant. Um, and by the way, I have my own uh, opinion on this, which I will not share, but she was very adamant. We had this conversation. It was very good. Three or four days later, I'm at the Jason Isbell concert, and amidst the raucous noise at a break in the show, a very good friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Arkansas here leans over and says, what do you think about you know the, the, the leaked opinion? Um, just before 24 frames starts playing, which I thought was an awkward time, but whatever. And, um, and he is very, very adamant that it was leaked by the left. And, and I talked about it after the show with him. Um, and both people are very adamant, think that the people on the other side are misinformed or reading it wrong. Um, and here I am sort of stuck in between these two uh, camps thinking, wow, very different opinions based on very similar information, right? All we have is a leaked opinion and the interpretation of it. And and yet they are convinced that one side is out to harm the other by the leaking of this opinion. And it seemed very interesting to me. Um, I'm not 100% sure how to navigate those kinds of conversations with my friends, A. And B, I'm not sure what that says about the, the farther reaching implications, uh, the, the, the outer relationships, my relationship to the local government, the state government, Arkansas is a trigger state, right? So if 
Roe's overturned, we immediately ban abortions. Um, the national uh, institution, and particularly the institution of the Supreme Court, uh, as a bar member, of, uh, you know, of which I'm a huge supporter, right? So, um, so I'd love to talk through sort of your books and y'all's thoughts with that as a lens. Like these are the issues that we're dealing with every day, right? Where two camps have distinct and vociferous views and are unbending. So how do we, how do we engage those sorts of politics? Walk me through that hypothetical. Well, my first job out of college was at Planned Parenthood. I took a real journey when I was in high school, I went to girl state. Do y'all have that where you live? Mm-hmm. Like where Absolutely, all the high schoolers yeah. go and, and I recently found the legislation I introduced with my roommate, which was a partial birth abortion ban. So I took a real swing over the course of college. Mm. And so this is always a topic that is really, it's just been at the center of most of my political conversations, like many Americans, but in a really lived way for most of my adult life. And I think the first thing I would say is the idea that there are two camps is like probably the first place we need to really do some reexamination. Mm. Because there are two extremes, as there are in most things we discuss in American life. But most Americans do not sort neatly into those extremes. Most yeah. Americans um, fall along a, a pretty broad spectrum of beliefs when it comes to reproductive rights. So I think when we can sort of start to excavate that middle ground, I mean, I think middle ground is like, where are we as Americans when, as Americans when middle ground is a weighted topic, but you know, it's like a weighted <laughs> word to use, but yeah. it is. And I think, you know, I much in the same way that I think gay rights made progress when they really focused on the individual impact and sort of artic- articulated those stories. <laughs> I think we can start to s- sort of excavate get that complexity when we scratch at individual stories surrounding abortion. I think, you know, the the forcefulness in which the medical community is coming out and saying, this will impact everything. This will mm. re- impact miscarriage care. This mm. will impact infertility treatments. Mm. This will impact medical training. Um, this is not a simple issue of somebody's having an abortion you don't think they have, and we're going to stop that. So much more complicated than that. I think the yeah. women who are coming out and telling the stories of wanted pregnancies that had to end an abortion are incredibly brave and essential to, again, show like this is not what we think it is. This is not Mm. as simple as we think it is. Even this issue that we feel is so bifurcated, right? It's just, it's more complicated than that. Um, And I think the more we can do and the more we can just, you know, I kind of want to be, I kind of want to take the Steve Bannon approach, which is not a sentence I use a lot in my life. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he has that like, you just flood the field, right? You just flood the field. He uses it with misinformation. You just flood the field with bullshit so people can't see Mm. up from down. And there's a part of me with this leaked opinion that just wants to flood the field. Like if Mm. every woman told her story um, about not just maybe having an abortion. You know, I had a D&E, which is the exact Mm. same procedure for a lost pregnancy 
that might not have been available to me. Might not if I if this ha- if this were to happen, the exact same thing that happened to me happened in 10 years. I might not be able to get the medical care that mm. really saved my life and protected my mental health. Mm-hmm. And I just think like flooding the field with those stories to say like this is not as simple as we think it is. Yeah. I think you know most people kind of know that inherently, but just putting that out there as much as we can and not letting it be defined in this very black and white political way will I don't know where it'll get us, but it'll get us somewhere different than where we are right now. Yeah. You know, a difference between Sarah and me on this issue is that Sarah is so comfortable talking about it because she has a lot of experience (laughs) with it. And I'm not. If I were at a concert and someone asked me about the Supreme Court leak, I would probably want to go to the bathroom or something because I don't want to work (laughs) at a concert. But, um, But in my life, you know, if those leaked conversations came up, I would be interested in talking about the leak. What's significant to you about who leaked it? What difference would it make to you if your theory were confirmed or if it were disproven? Um, What are you saying about the other side or your side based on your opinion about this leak? I like to just interview people. Lots Mm -hmm. of questions. This Mm -hmm. was significant enough to you to talk to me about at this concert. Why is that? Yeah, Uh, Supreme Court's pretty important to me. I love to talk about the court. So I could see myself having a, a really robust conversation about that. Yeah. And then when you think about abortion itself, you know, I've been thinking over the past few days about how weird it is to hear politician after politician and person after person, like just in my life, rattle off rape, incest, life of the mother. Mm. Those are three enormous ideas. Yeah. Devastating ideas. And we just tick them off like we're doing a Nike commercial. What does that say about this issue and where we are with it? I would like to have that conversation with people in my life of of all persuasions on this, whatever they think mm. the policy ought to be. How did we get to a place where we say those those concepts in mm. that kind of list? Um, I I was really kind of devastated when I read Justice Alito's characterization of how Americans feel about this topic because I thought it yes. really flattened us out, and I thought he missed. A lot of people in summarizing, even people who probably agree with the result of this opinion, I don't think he represented well in characterizing Americans, uh, you know, on this issue. So I am really interested in the words that we use and kind of interrogating people who want to talk about this, about how we got to this place. So um, as you all know, I'm the one non-lawyer in here. I teach English. And I teach English to 11th and 12th graders, and I promise this as a connection. Um, the driving question I had in my classroom this year is when everything is hard and life is hard, why do good stories matter? In other words, when you're just constantly bombarded with thing after thing after thing, why are we still reading these great books? You know, why read Jane Eyre when everything is on fire? Um, and so that was the thing we talked about. And it reminds me of what you're saying here is how much stories matter. And this is a recurring theme that Seth and I talk about a lot as writers, that at the end of the day, as human beings, we are hardwired to learn through stories. And yeah, we learn about big philosophical or, um, you know, unifying themes of life, which is why some books stand the test of time. But we also learn the stories of our neighbor, the people that we sit at the table with and, and chat with. And like you guys, I can't think of one friend in person who is like, this is 100% how I feel about topic X. Like nobody thinks that way. Um, but we have some kind of story related to that. 
you know, and we all are human beings that have to-do lists to do today. And so, you know, whenever we are thinking about some hot issue topic, it's not like this is the one thing that's encompassing my day. We're thinking about it in the midst of the carpool line or, you know, before we run errands or whatever. Um, and this past weekend on Mother's Day, um, I had we had lunch with my parents and my dad just he got into all this and he was talking about how he misses the day when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could or Tip O'Neill would call Ronald Reagan and say, is it after 6 p.m. or something like that? How Reagan would say, is it after 6 p.m.? Because that meant then they were just back to being friends. Like they would, you know, they would disagree with each other on everything politically, but they would like go golfing together. And um, I think that's actually how most of us live. We're just not aware of it if we just look at at ideas without hearing stories, you know? I think that's really hard. Because part of me is like, absolutely, yes. I mean, I live in a purple city. I live in Kentucky, but I have a lot of Democrats in my town. Um, and so there's a lot of that, a lot of, I know I have devoted members of my community who I love and I do anything that vote very differently than me. And at the same time, you know, I think... You know, yes, and yes, and there I have members of my family who will say or post things. And I think, who are you? Who are you? How could you possibly think that? How could you possibly agree with this person? And every time I, you know, I, I feel that in my everyday life, but then I watch our politics get worse and worse and worse. And I watch, you know, just election people getting elected that I think, what? How? You know, how? How could this yeah. possibly happen? Um, and so it's this very disjointed experience I think a lot of people have. Um, and look, you know, the people who I would call extreme don't think of themselves as extreme. Think of themselves as reasonable. They have a lot of people around them who agree with them. And so they have that same disjointed experience only in the reverse, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what I try to remind myself of. But I do think, I mean, I think stories are so important. And I think part of how, part of the reason in America so often ideas get overwhelmed by stories, because some of our stories suck. Like some <laughs> of our stories are, we have to protect our border because mm. people are coming in to destroy American life and take American jobs and, you know, ruin everything. Some of our story is... Um, the other side is my enemy and because they are trying to destroy America. Some of our stories are, you know, the government is run by pedophiles who are trying to God knows what. You know, like I think some of that speaks to the power of stories. It's just some of the stories are terrible that we tell each other. We tell ourselves about what's going on in American life right now. Yeah. And Sarah, I, I want to build off that point a little bit because you do say you did say that you know some of the people that we we hear or see as more extreme um, that they have their own lived story and their own lived experience and they see themselves as reasonable and I I tend to agree with you. There seem to be though people who sort of push the boundaries of those limits, right? I'll name names. I'm unafraid, as all of our listeners know, right? So a Marjorie Taylor Green, right? She seems to push the the limits of what is sort of a rational, reasonable story? Alex Jones, 
same way, right? I mean, calling, uh, you know, the 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 shooting at Columbine, calling that or Newtown, ca- yeah, Sandy Hook at Newtown, um, calling that a hoax is obviously pushing the bounds of rational thinking. And so it does seem to be that there are also grifters out there, right? Um, and so how do you balance those who may have different lived experiences, right? So people in the Ozarks, for instance, or people people in the Appalachians who may feel forgotten and lost and left out um, versus those who seem to be on an unapologetic grift and pulling people along with them. Like, how do you have conversations around that? I think it's important to remember that no one likes to feel like they're being duped. So even though I agree with you that there are grifters out there, lots of them, and I understand why they're doing it. We know their names. There are lots of members of of the House of Representatives that we can't name, and we can all name Marjorie Taylor Greene now. So I understand what she's doing and why she's doing it. Uh, but I cannot walk into a conversation with a family member who's decided that she really is on the side of Jesus, you know, and say, you realize you're being taken for a ride. I can't do yeah. that because that yeah. disrespects them. So I have to just start from a place of curiosity about them. You know, in the book, we kind of offer these strategies of like, if if you have a brother or an uncle or someone who's who's attached to one of these figures, uh, then maybe you say, gosh, it's so weird that we grew up in the same house and we see this person totally differently. Why do you think that is? Mm. What is it that connects with you about this person? Because everything about me rejects her. So I'm just, I'm really curious about why you have found this attachment. Why do you trust this source? Uh, I read it and I I don't get it at all. Uh, and And it doesn't track with what I feel that we learned about who speaks responsibly and who we mm. trust. And I just want to understand where you're coming from because uh, I think one of the most toxic forces in all of our political discussions right now is this pervasive feeling of disrespect. Yeah, And I think that makes it difficult to try to get back that Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan dynamic. You know, part of what happened, I think, with Reagan and O'Neill that's hard to replicate today is that Washington was more contained to Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find those same dynamics that used to make Washington a, a difficult political environment at a school board meeting sometimes now. And so um, they were professionals and we have made it an amateur sport. And so mm. I think as we engage with other people who, who want to be part of that amateur sport, uh, finding ways to build trust just to have the conversation, not to convince each other of something new is is where we have to start. It's patient work. It's exhausting. It's not for everyone. We try to say that in the book too. Um, I understand like my identity is not threatened in almost any space in the United States. So I can do this work. I don't expect it of someone who's, whose very identity is being threatened. Um, mm-hmm. I would tell them that their job is to look for safety and, and my mm-hmm. job is to engage the people who feel left behind mm-hmm. um, and try to figure out how we kind of come back together. I mean, I definitely reserve my rage for the grifters. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more offensive to me. Thank you. Um, and it's it's disgusting. It's yeah. disgusting, you know, and there's no way to dress it up or make yourself feel better. about. It. I don't have any grace for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I've developed a little bit of grace for Madison Cawthorn just because I think he's in distress. I don't know where his parents are. I have some questions. Um, <laughs> but can I you quote know, you on that? Marjorie I Taylor Greene's questions. grown up. You know, so 
but I think, you know, there's always the distinction between the grifters, the leaders of the party and the base and the voters and the people who are just going about their everyday life and who've been plugged into this information environment. I do not think you can discount what it like. We had a listener one time, I'll never forget, who talked about like her father listened to right wing talk radio all day, every day. Yeah. I mean, I cannot fathom what that yeah. would do to a psyche. Yeah. And, you know, to have Fox News on in the background, that's just all day, every day. Be angry, be angry, be angry, be angry. And I just think we cannot discount what that, what the force of that <laughs> on a human a yeah. mind and a human spirit and a human soul. Um, it's powerful. And the people profiting off that sort of toxicity. Well, they do it. They they do I it on a my pillow. I don't know how. I don't know how they do it. I'll be honest. They, I guess, on big old piles of money. But, um, you know, it is. It, it's not. It's not an. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about individuals and individual relationship and individual connections. But you cannot discount these sort of systemic yeah. issues and that media environment is absolutely a massive part of it. So I'm curious what you guys would say to the people listening in, right? These are average Joes and Janes who are, you know, sitting at the table at their own local coffee shop, chatting with friends. Um, to the best of my knowledge, Madison Cawthorn does not listen to her podcast. What did so that be? Not, a surprise. That would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be a whole thing. Um, but, you know, we're, we're just people who are doing our thing. So just to kind of take your book's title into account, like, now what? Like, what do we do about all this? Like, what's the big takeaway you want those of us who are regular people to have? Well, I want you to read the book, but. <laughs> right. Noted. And in the show's links. Uh, show notes. <laughs> I would say I want you to keep doing your thing. In regular mm. people life. I hope that the book feels a little bit like some pressure gets released mm. because regular people who care about their communities, when they start to engage with news and politics regularly, it is stressful. It is overwhelming, yeah. especially if you're a person who sincerely wants to leave the world better than you found it. It can start to feel like you need to be uh, running for office and or making calls for campaigns and or donating constantly. And the the really only way we've been taught to engage politically is through very active measures that feel like a fight. Mm -hmm. And I hope our book says, you know what, just living your life is a political contribution. Paying attention yeah. is a political contribution. What you do in your workplace matters. It helps define how other people understand power. The way that you behave in your community organizations where you have tons of political power matters a lot. Um, that taking that political power where you have it instead of reaching for it constantly at the national and global level is important. So I hope that people read the book and close it and and kind of exhale and think, you know, I'm I'm doing what I need to be doing and that's enough. And I can love the people around me and hope that they are inspired to do what they need to be doing without us coming to some draft proposal for how the world ought to be that we all sign on to. As we wrote the book, I sort of had this vision. We were disentangling while weaving, right? Like we were pulling the, you know, sometimes when you knit, your yarn gets in this big giant mess and you kind of had to untangle it before you can knit it back together again. 
And that's sort of the vision when we were writing this book, right? Like, let's just pull some of these threads out and see if we can disentangle some of the complexity with our family members or some of the complexity when we try to talk to our kids about climate change or some of the complexity when we think about national politics and then pick them back up and weave it all together in something strong into something stronger. Um, and I hope that's what we've managed to do. That's definitely what we try to do on the podcast is find a way to engage that's empowering instead of anxiety producing because, you know, we're the committee. It's, it's both, you know, our work and not our individual work to do, but we do have to do it together. It does take all the individuals. It's just not going to be one individual savior fixing all this. Um, as much as we were counting on Barack Obama to do that, it didn't work out that way. And Michelle's not signing up. So everybody holding out hope for that. Just let it go. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. <laughs> She's not doing it. You guys. <laughs> My big takeaway um, from your book or one of the things that I really loved about your book, I, I say a lot that uh, every act of writing is an act of spiritual formation. Um, when I work with clients, I tell them that when I'm talking about a book, I say that I love the idea that, that you know, when you go down to put something on a page, you're acting and enga- you're actually engaging in something that's very spiritual. Um, and I found that to be very, very true in your book. And and I saw um, you guys using questions a lot. Um, you know, asking the reader to pause and consider certain questions that might reframe the conversation or even reframe the way you think about things. Um, there are a couple instances where you use sort of these imagination exercises, almost like Ignatian, uh, it, you know, for Catholic listeners out there, almost like Ignatian prayer exercises where you would stop and put yourself in an imaginary position and sort of play that out, um, which I thought was really brilliant. Is it, Again, uh, is almost like a way of living a sort of prayer in your everyday life. Um, and, and Beth, you talk about the role of, of, of curiosity, um, you know, on this show today, but it's, it's littered throughout the book. I mean, it's constantly this return to this idea of being curious and compassionate to the other person across the table from you as you talk about these issues. If you could a- uh, offer one final takeaway uh, to the reader um, about, you know, or to the listener about their, your hope as they read this book, as they engage these questions um, as they work on these sort of like hypothetical exercises, like what what would you hope they take away from the book? That life is a lot more interesting than we're allowing it to be right now. <laughs> you know, I think that all of those questions are styled as helping us connect to others, but they are questions about us. Every place where I've found it possible to change my mind has come from having a real sense of curiosity about a topic or another person or about me. Yeah. And uh, I think that walking into politics, which has infected everything with this sense of like, well, I know where I stand on everything has made life a lot less interesting than it can be. And if we get more interested in each other, we'll get more interested in ourselves. And that is just a more joyful way to live. Sarah, how about you? Really back to what I said at the beginning of the show, that connection can be forged through conflict. That, you know, I read a book recently by Sarah Shulman called Conflict is Not Abuse. And the second I heard the title, I was like, ah, I want to absorb every page of this book mm. because it connected mm. with me so much that like conflict doesn't it's not abuse. Like we are going to, inha- to inherently have conflict with one another. And if we can shift the way we perceive it, not to absorb actual toxic abuse or violence or anything of the sort, but to see conflict as a way to get to know each other and, e- and ourselves better. 
um, to see all that interesting complexity Beth just named that um, I think we could really start tackling all the problems and issues that keep us up at night and keep us anxiety ridden and keeping us, keep us at each other's throats. Um, yeah. And so I hope that people can start to, to sort of shift their thinking instead of shutting down in the face of conflict or running away from it, but to see it as a, a potential source of connection. It's good. Well, I love it. It's been amazing talk, talking with you guys. I think everyone needs to pick up now what, how to move forward when we're divided about basically everything in the show notes. Um, and and I encourage uh, our listeners to really engage the questions, engage the exercises, engage the material and the content, and think through ways to move forward with understanding and curiosity, particularly um, particularly at the familial, friendly, local level um, with people you engage with every day who disagree with you. Great work. So excited to have you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having and us. And I mean, really, it was very good. Yeah. It was very good. Thank you. So- we end every show the same way, which is we ask each other what is one thing we're listening to, reading, watching, maybe eating. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe your favorite wallpaper that you're decorating with, whatever. That's bringing more truth, goodness, and beauty to your life. So, Tish, mm-hmm. talk to me. Talk to me. All right. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen this show. A coworker, teacher, friend of mine told me about the show called The Biggest Little Farm. Have y'all seen this? Okay. It's on Hulu. Have you seen it, Seth? Because you're nodding. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. It sounds like something Amber would like, to be honest. Yes. 100%. Um, <laughs> it's so good. It's a documentary about this family who didn't know what they were doing. And they bought a farm and it, it started from like unusable soil all the way to this like traditional farming method with 75 different varieties of fruit trees and pigs and piglets and chickens and the whole bit and it's just lovely and when there's a dearth of good stuff to watch with our kids that doesn't want us to you know poke our eyes out with forks it's so fun to find a nice show um that we can all watch and enjoy uh even though it's a documentary so it's the biggest little farm i i know it's on hulu and i believe there's a sequel on disney plus now which i don't quite understand but there you go um so yeah Put a link in the show notes to that. I highly recommend it. Seth, how about you? Well, this will probably come as no surprise, but I'm revisiting poetry again. I'm revisiting all my favorite poetry. Um, And for whatever reason, last week, um, I dove back into E.E. Cummings' I Thank You God for Most, which is anyone who knows my writing knows is my favorite poem of all time ever, period, hands down. Um, and I was revisiting, I was thinking through this, this story of this professor I had. Um, he was a property professor. We had very different, uh, political views and he was my favorite professor of all time. He's the first person that helped me understood that well-meaning people of faith could, could really under, uh, disagree about a whole host of things and, um, still really love each other. And that was the, the truth of his life. And, and my and and our relationship and um, we were at a dinner once upon a time um, for a group of students and significant others were supposed to be there and Amber was in the MFA program she's a poet and um, he looked at her and said in honor of uh, the the sort of outsider in the room allow me to uh, quote my my favorite poem and then just out of nowhere 
quoted word for word E.E. E. Cummings. Hmm. Um, and so I've been revisiting that a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks and revisiting that story a lot, uh, mostly because for whatever reason at this time of year when we're getting close to graduation uh, season, I think about him a lot and miss him a lot. So there's my uh, shout out to uh, the now past uh, Dean Richard Atkinson and to E.E. Mm. E. Cummings. Well, it was a poem. I like it. And thank you for that. Cause I have to give the graduation speech at this year's commencement of my school. <laughs> and I'm like, you should use I that I poem. That's the one. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Dr. Sarah, how about you? What do y'all have in your life right now that's adding more beauty? Well, I have to say I have E.E. E. Cummings quotes engraved in my husband and I's wedding rings. We have. Oh, has, that's so cool. I have I carry your heart and he has I carry it in mm. my heart. We had that oh. in our wedding program. I there love are that. people. Yeah. Um, do you know the Indigo Girls song Southland in the springtime? Yes. No. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful stuff. song. And it's just where All I right. live right now. I'm in Southland in the springtime. And it's just the most beautiful place. Azaleas and magnolias and tulips and dogwoods and cherry blossoms. Uh, the peonies are starting to bloom. So mm-hmm. I don't have to look for beauty yeah. anywhere but right outside my window right now. Or on my desk. I, love it. I just had peonies de- delivered through our local forest. So it's just a really, really beautiful time of year where I live. Yeah, good choice. Good choice. Beth, how about you? Uh, I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I feel that I was inadequately prepared for an 11-year-old daughter. <laughs> this uh, dramatic acceleration into puberty and all that comes with it and the roller coaster of living with an 11-year-old daughter every day is uh, something that I could have used some training for. I'm just saying. <laughs> and so uh, she loves the show Glow Up. It is a Mm. British reality show about makeup and uh, there are MUAs or makeup artists. My husband really hates that there's an acronym that only reduces your your speech by one syllable. He thinks that doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, these makeup artists compete and they do uh, challenges around like preparing for an episode of The Crown and doing period makeup correctly or preparing for a Broadway production of The Lion King and doing that kind of makeup and then like just all kinds of art. Um, you know, represent yourself through this form of makeup. It's amazing what they do with makeup and the mm-hmm. use of prosthetics and just all kinds of interesting things. Uh, and my 11-year-old Jane is very much an artist herself. So she digs this show. And it has been a gift because finding something to connect in a pure way with an 11-year-old girl about is tricky. Mm-hmm. So it's been so nice to watch with her and the kinds of conversations that we have like, oh, How would you have represented yourself? Which color would you have chosen for this? And hearing her ideas as she watches it has been really lovely. That's cool. That's very cool. And it's British, so they're all so supportive of each other. Right, of course. There's no added (laughs) drama. I've seen the little thumbnail, and it's been recommended to me, so maybe that's why. And as an Anglophile, Tish, you should love this show. Apparently I should, so I'll have to check it out when school gets out in a few weeks and I'm done grading. All right, guys, it's time to wrap this one up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkfriend.com. Just a reminder that we are going to Tuscany this summer, and Seth and I would love to have you. Right now through the end of May, you can join us for $250 off. That is such a steal. We would love to have you, so find the link to learn more in the show notes of this episode. You can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? They can find me at sethhaines.substack.com. Cheer for me. I got it right. 
You got it right. All right. Beth and Sarah, where can people find you and your work? You can listen to Pantsuit Politics anywhere you find podcasts. PantsuitPoliticsShow.com is really our front door. Our website will connect you to all the things that we do. And thank you so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. You're so welcome. And we'll put the link to all the things, including the book, Now What?, in the show notes of this episode. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, Beth Silvers, and Sarah Stewart-Holland. And we will be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.